Now, some people think that the harlot, the liar, the prostitute, the drunkard, the murderer needs the gospel. Yes, they do, but so don't you. Because next to Jesus Christ, we all fall short of that righteousness. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we find ourselves in chapter 3 in a passage that some have described as the most important paragraph in the Bible. Romans 3.23 declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And really, this is a framework for the gospel, because before a man can be saved, he needs to know that he is lost. As we pick up, Pastor Carl from John 8.31 talks about individuals who Jesus indicated had a false faith. There are millions of people in America today, some sitting here, some listening to me and not through another vehicle, but they would say Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the eternal son who left heaven, became a man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was raised from the dead. And they believe those facts, and they think because they believe those facts that they are saved and on their way to heaven. In fact, this idea of fickle faith is not new to John 8. He's already described it twice in this gospel. If you remember in John 6, when he does the miracle of feeding some 20,000 people, when he moves from the miracle to the meaning of the miracle, and he addresses some hard things like sin and the cost of discipleship, things that many do not want to preach today. The crowd went from, 10, from some 20,000 to a handful of people. It says in that passage of Scripture that many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Why? Because they were not genuine converted disciples. Remember, in this chapter of Scripture, these are people who with great orthodoxy called him the prophet. Not just a prophet, but the prophet. The one that Moses spoke of back in Deuteronomy 18. The one who would be Messiah. And so the Bible says they wanted to make him king, but they had not been converted. I was trying to help a person this week see that they needed to call upon Jesus Christ in genuine faith. Oh, I've been saved. But she said, I don't know why I don't have an assurance of my salvation. I said, let me ask you a very difficult question, and I just want you to be honest with me. Are you sleeping with this one you call your fiancé? She said, yes, I am, Pastor. I said, is this new, recent? It's been going on for a decade. And I said, listen, the Bible teaches when a person is genuinely born again, there's a change that takes place. Now, don't be deceived for a moment. Let him who thinks he stand be careful lest he fall. For no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. Any Christian has the capacity to commit any kind of sin. That's why Paul will say in Galatians, walk by the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the sinful nature. And then he says, the desires of the sinful nature are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those are some of the works of the sinful nature. And then he goes on to say that those who practice such things, another translation says those who live like this 
have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Because if that's what marks our life, then we are marked still as dead in sin. And so we're studying on Wednesday night that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. And so there are people all across America who know all the right answers, who understand justification by grace through faith, and someday, unfortunately, at the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord will say, I never knew them. Not I once knew you, I never knew you. You know, it deeply concerns me what is going on in our nation and what is going on in our society and what is going on in the church. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things, because of what things? Because of sensuality, idolatry, and immorality. Paul says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You know, I, I see sometimes the, this thing we call Facebook. Oh boy, here's another mother in a bikini. You know, I guess they don't listen to what I have to say. And you see these teenagers and they're parading themselves and even these young men trying to look studly and, you know, no shirt on and flexing their muscles. And why is that? They're either idolatrously in love with themselves, worshiping themselves, or sometimes it's that seductive look because they're calling out to members of the opposite sex. Or sometimes they haven't done those things, but they are characterized by the spirit of sensuality. And the Bible says, listen, that is a work of the flesh, impurity, sensuality. And those who live like that, if that's the spirit of your heart, you have proof positive that you have a pseudo faith, that your faith is not genuine. And so understand here in John 8, 31, Every time the Bible uses the word believe or even the word disciple, it's not in reference to a genuine Christian. And so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had, quote unquote, believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now, when you read that verse at first, it seems rather innocuous. You don't know whether or not these people have the genuine item. But again, the context bears it out. You come down to verse 34. He calls them slaves of sin. He says in verse 37 that his word has no place in their lives. In verse 44, he says they are of their father, the devil, doing the devil's desires. And in verse 55, he calls them liars. And taken collectively, those are characteristics of a person who's never been born again. These are like the folks on rocky ground in the parable of the sower. And these who had, quote unquote, believed, when you come down to verse 45, he says, you do not believe me. That tells us it's not real because you cannot turn off real faith, true faith. However, it is possible to believe in your mind and not in the heart. And Paul is going to deal with this when we come to Romans 6. He will say in Romans 6, 17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, certainly, faith involves emotions because this verse indicates that it comes from the heart as well as from the mind. But a person cannot be saved just by good feelings. Many people have substituted good feelings for genuine faith in Christ. And for some pastors, that's their message, good feelings. But it doesn't bring true genuine faith. For that matter, neither can you just have an intellectual dimension to faith. 
You can't just think your way to heaven. Now, there is an intellectual dimension to faith. As Paul will argue when we come to Romans 10, 14 to 17, you cannot believe something you have not heard. Our faith is not some blank faith, but he makes it very clear that it's more than emotional, more than intellectual, that it involves the will. And so here, back here in Romans 3 and verse 22, he speaks even of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now, Paul's not done with his introduction to this sermon yet. He wants to make it very clear that this righteousness that you need is unachievable by anyone. Why? Because it's not something you can earn. It is apart from the law, apart from your deeds. But he also makes it very clear that this righteousness is revealed to all. God didn't hide it. He manifested it in the law and the prophets. And that this righteousness is available to all for anybody, anywhere, because it is not earned. It comes through faith for all who believe. But now he goes on and he squeaks it out just a little bit more and he's going to show that this righteousness is needed by all because all of us have a huge problem. And we've seen that expressed again in recent days. The problem with that young man and the evil that he did is not a psychological problem. It is a sinful problem. That's what the Word of God would teach. And so the promise of verse 22, that anyone can be saved through faith, he then gives the reason why. Do you see what there at the end of verse 22, what it says? For there is no distinction. Now, Romans 3.23 is one of the most popular verses in all the New Testament. Many, many, many Christians can quote it. But we would do well to quote it, because remember, the verse divisions are artificial with that which is the subject of the verse. For there is no distinction. What do you mean? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In God's economy, there's no distinction. Whether you are the pagan of Romans 1, whether you are the moralizer of Romans 2, whether you are the religious man of Romans 2 and Romans 3, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are African, Asian, European, or Indian, moral or immoral, educated or uneducated, religious or non-religious, there is no distinction because he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the message of the prophets was all of us like sheep have gone astray each one of us has turned to his own way for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God now I want us to think through this verse very very carefully this morning because it is important that man understand his biggest problem and then he understand God's solution to this biggest problem and there are people listening to me this morning who are overwhelmed with a sense of guilt Some are denying it, some are fighting it, some are suppressing it. Others are searching and wondering, how on earth can the guilt in my heart be lifted? And they need to hear from someone, somebody like you, who will tell them how it can be lifted. Now understand, in essence, all religions try to deal with this problem. And they deal with it in different ways. Some totally deny it. And those religions in the world that don't deny it, they come up with a different solution. Maybe some kind of sacred bath. If you bathe in a certain kind of water, you and God will be right with one another. Some take a sacred journey. Some commit acts of penance or self-sacrifice. 
The Pharisees who thought they were good enough, Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, by that little epigram, Jesus did not mean that some were righteous and therefore not in need, but that some people thought they were righteous and therefore didn't see their need. You go to a physician when you're sick and you cannot heal yourself. You go to a savior when you cannot save yourself. It is a principle that runs all the way through life. Deny the problem and nothing can be done about it. Admit the problem and there is at once a possibility for it. It would be foolishness. It would be less than professional for some physician to acquiesce to the self-diagnosis of his patient that he knows is wrong. And it is equally unprofessional, unchristian, poor ambassadorship if somehow we know a man is lost, he is espousing a certain view about how he thinks he can be right, and we know it's wrong, and we say nothing. So I want you to understand Romans 3, 23, inside and out. Four principles I want to give you today. That's just the introduction, all right? So first of all, there's the universal verdict. The universal verdict. Again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See that little word for? It's a causal preposition in Greek. You could translate it because. Paul is saying the reason there is no distinction is because or for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all refers to everybody. It's comprehensive. It's all-inclusive. It's all-embracing. It's all-encompassing. It doesn't leave anyone out. Paul is not saying, I'm just talking about Romans. I'm just talking about Italians in Rome. I'm just talking about Jews in Rome. No, I'm talking about everyone, everywhere, all have sinned. And that's why he has already said that all the world will become accountable to God because here there is no distinction. So that's the universal verdict. Secondly, there's an undeniable status. An undeniable status. Again in verse 23, for all have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. He's telling us that this universal verdict that we are all included in has brought in undeniable status that we are guilty sinners. Now, we often overlook or skip the word have, but it is just as important as the next word, sinned. Have sinned, actually, is one word in Greek that we translate with two uh, English words. And the verb is interesting as God originally inspired it in the Greek New Testament. The thought is, in the past, all have sinned. There are absolutely no exceptions. Now, without wanting to sound like a know-it-all, let me just say, first of all, that most of our English translations, not all of them, but most of them, are very precise they are a very accurate rendering of what God originally inspired, and we have much to be grateful for. However, with that said, if you've ever worked from one language to another, then you know that sometimes when you move from the tongue you are trying to translate into the receptor language, that in every single instance, if you're trying to do a word-for-word -word relationship, you can't always communicate the exact same truth unless you begin to paraphrase and amplify and explain and get into detail. And this is one of those verses where that is true. Now listen to me, follow carefully. There are some sections in the Word of God that I tell people when they read it just in their native tongue, 
assuming it's not, say, Greek, as this passage was inspired in, it's like looking at television on a 20-inch screen. But when you read this verse in the Greek New Testament, it's like reading it on a 65-inch TV with stereo and surround sound. Now, on both TVs, you can see the same picture. But on the big screen, surround sound TV, you can pick up some of the fine nuances. And sometimes, most of the time it is not true, but on occasion it is true that sometimes in the original there is a nuance that God wants to bring out that doesn't always come out in English. This is why the Protestant reformers felt like it was essential that we study the languages. Luther said, the languages are the sheath in which the sword of the Spirit is contained. And so God sovereignly had this passage written in Greek. Now again, let me emphasize that God the Holy Spirit can help us to understand any passage in our English Bible. However, on occasion, it's certainly helpful to know Greek because it can bring out the richness of the text. Let me give you an example. For instance, in English, we have tenses. Uh, We have past tense, present tense, and future tense. So does in Greek, so does in every languages. But not only in Greek are there tenses dealing with the time of time, there's what they have in Greek verbs called aspect that deals with the kind of time. For instance, if you were here on Wednesday night, we were looking at Ephesians 5.18, and it says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to, you know, reckless behavior, dissipation, a loss of control, but be filled with the Spirit. And the verb there, filled, is the kind of verb in the original that is not speaking of a once and for all experience, but an ongoing experience. You could translate it or paraphrase it, keep being filled moment by moment with the Spirit. Now again, let me say, don't ever be intimidated by someone who knows Greek and Hebrew just because you do not. But let me also say, neither criticize those who do. The reason we are enjoying an accurate translation of the Word of God in our own tongue this morning is because there were some men who were willing to sweat bullets and learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic to give it to us. But understand, while a Greek scholar may read the Bible in living color, if he doesn't apply it, he may be a babe in Christ. So it doesn't mean that he's more spiritual, where you can have someone else who can only read it in their tongue, but they obey what they know, and they're far more mature than the linguist. Now, the verb that is used here, translated have sinned, deals not just with Uh, particular acts of sin, but an event. There are different nuances of the aorist tense, and this is what linguists call an historical aorist. Now stay with me. He's describing here not just deeds of sin, but he's describing our sin nature. He's not just describing sins plural, those acts of sin, but sin singular, the nature from which those acts come. He's referring to a decision in the past that all of humanity has made. He's going to describe it when we come to Romans, the fifth chapter, where he uses the identical heiress verb, and he will say, therefore, just as through one man's sin, just through one man, uh, just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Everybody originated out of Adam. Now, the evolutionist wants to blur that and deny that. He wants to think, tell you out of the glue into the zoo that became you. He wants you to think that your ancestor was some monkey that is now well-developed into this high form. 
That's not what the Word of God says. It is impossible to be a theistic evolutionist and to be true to the Word of God. No, God teaches in Adam was every man, woman, boy, or girl who would ever live, such that when Adam sinned, all sinned. Now, when we come to Romans 5, we'll explain that because that's when Paul explains it. But I want you to see that Adam is the fountainhead of the human race. And no matter how far down the river you are, whether it was a year or 10,000 years, it hasn't changed one bit. We're all born with a sin nature. And so a young child doesn't need to be taught to lie. He needs to be able to speak the truth and taught that. Why? Because by nature, he's a little sinner. He's a little selfish person. He wants his own way. It comes naturally. Question, is an apple tree an apple tree because it bears apples? Or does it bear apples because it's an apple tree? It bears apples because its nature is that of an apple tree. And because our nature is that of fallen sinful people, so we sin. We recently had another bird's nest, actually two, in our garage. And they build them every year on the porch or next to the garage. And we always love to, to watch them. And it was fun to watch this mother hatch her eggs and these little birds to be born and immediately begin to chirp. And they began to chirp without the mother giving them chirping lessons. She didn't come and say, now listen, if you want a worm, chirp, and I'll bring you a worm. No, instinctively, they chirped. And then we saw these same birds get pushed out by the mother, and she didn't give them flying lessons. Instinctively, they began to fly. Well, just as a bird chirps by virtue of its nature, so we sin by virtue of our nature. Just as a bird loves worms, so by nature we love to sin. Just as a bird never needs to be taught to fly, neither do we need to be taught to sin. No, our acts of sin just reveal what we are by nature. And so Paul here is describing the nature of man. The thought is, for all have the nature of a sinner. For all have the nature of their father. Now, even if you don't understand that, and wait till we come to Romans 5 and let Paul explain it to you, let Scripture interpret Scripture, even if you don't understand that, you can understand this, that by nature, by choice, by activity, everyone in this room, everyone in the sound of my voice, with the exception of the Lord Jesus, has committed acts of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, don't get lost in that linguistic farce. I don't want you to miss the point. The word sin here is an interesting word. It's found in the New Testament as a verb, it's found as a noun, and it's found as an adjective. It, when it's used as a verb, um, at, speaking of the action of sinning, it refers to someone who, by what he has done, has missed the mark. When it's used as a noun, which is the uh, product of what the sinning does, we call it sin, it refers to an activity or an action that misses the mark. And when it's used of a person as an adjective, it describes who we are, people who miss the mark. And so whether as a verb, whether as a noun, whether as an adjective, it means the same thing in every instance. It means to miss the mark. Now remember, the Greek of the New Testament is Koine Greek, common Greek. Paul didn't use a high, sophisticated kind of Greek. God inspired him to write in Koine Greek, in common Greek. And in common Greek, in the first century, it was either used of an archer who had missed the target or someone who had wandered from a known path. 
you would say that they were a sinner or they had sinned. And so God wants to make it very clear here that all of us have sinned. We may want to deny it. We may want to suppress it, but it is true. I remember when I was a student in college and I used to mail pages of Scripture to people in the Soviet Union because most of them had no Bible. And there would be Christians uh, with the organization I was with who would go in in the summer and they would get into Russia on different kinds of visas and they would just copy names and addresses of people. And then they would bring them back to the States and, and then we would take those names and addresses and we would mail a single page of Scripture to get by those commies. Well, what did the communists say in regards to sin? This is what the Russian dictionary said for so many years. They defined sin in this way. An archaic word denoting the transgression of a mythical divine law. <laughs> That's what they said. Listen, they may believe that, and there are communists, and there's still some billion of them on the earth out of the two billion Chinese people, nearly. There's a whole lot that believe that. You can deny it. It doesn't change its truth. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Suppose um, I've stacked up this many good deeds in my life, and uh, Dave down here has done this many good deeds. You might come along and say, well, you know, Dave's done more good deeds than Pastor Carl. I, I think he's going to make it into heaven. Somebody else might say, well, I don't know. Look at Pastor Larry. Pastor Larry's better than David. Now Dave's starting to look like a lowlife. Uh, look at all that he's done. And then somebody else says, oh, forget Pastor Larry. Look at Mother Teresa. Look at Dr. King. Look at the Holy Father, as Catholics call the Pope. Now they're super religious. Now us, you know, all, all of us look like a bunch of reprobates. But then in comes Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Now you see there's a level playing field that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now some people think that the harlot, the liar, the prostitute, the drunkard, the murderer needs the gospel. Yes, they do, but so don't you. Because next to Jesus Christ, we all fall short of that righteousness. Sometimes I will hear a Christian say, oh, he really needs to be saved. As if somehow in their theology, they think that person is more wicked, more lost than they or somebody else they know. Like in their theology, that person is more dead. When Paul describes humanity, he says that humanity is dead in their trespasses and sins. Dead is dead. There's not some people who are deader than others. There are some people who, from a human perspective, they may be at the lowest point on the face of the earth, at, uh, they're in Israel at the Dead Sea, and then there are other people who may be at the highest place on the face of the earth on top of Mount Everest, but neither of them can touch the stars. They have the same problem. They fall short of the glory of God. They are equally in need of a Savior and so of those people who were outwardly religious, Jesus said, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get in before they do. To listen again to today's message entitled, Man's Biggest Problem, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting Man's Biggest Problem, Program ROM13. 
Have you yet signed up for the Search the Scriptures Tour of Israel? May 11th through the 22nd of next year, Pastor Carl will be leading a group of STS listeners through the Holy Land. So many of the places you've only read about in the Bible will come alive as Dr. Brogy teaches about the various Old and New Testament sites that are found in God's chosen nation. Get all the details online at stsisraeltour.com and act quickly because the registration deadline is February 11th. The STS Israel Tour is paid for exclusively by those who choose to participate. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at man's biggest problem. Join us then as we search the scriptures.